Shannon gets at his character's pent-up torment as well as his efficient disconnect. When his two worlds start to converge on his daughter's sweet 16th birthday, no less, you feel for him. That's Lisa Kennedy of Denver Post talking about The Iceman. One of the movies we're reviewing this week, it's about a mob hitman, notorious contract killer Richard Kuklinski. The movie came out in 2013, but I've never seen it, so I wanted to review it for all of you. Michael Shannon's the star, Winona Ryder, Chris Evans, Ray Liotta, David Schwimmer. How about that cast? John Ventimiglia, James Franco, Stephen Dorff. That's right. We're talking about the Iceman Plus. With what we're dealing with right now, I want to look at a couple of films looking at healthcare. The Hospital from 1971 starring George C. Scott and also Awakenings, a great film, of course, starring Robert De Niro and Robin Williams. Those are our reviews. we got entertainment news involving another very expensive Martin Scorsese movie and Jerry Seinfeld with a comedy special, plus sportscasters making us all laugh. Speaking of sports, John Pess is a terrific writer. He's got a new book called Yogi, Life Behind the Mask, 507 pages of goodness. He's going to tell us all about Yogi and the movies and our Mount Rushmore of late-night TV hosts, plus Total Recall, the 2002 Oscars. That's right, when A Beautiful Mind won Best Picture. Hopefully everybody is staying safe. Thank you so much for checking us out. I, I can't tell you how much it means to me. It's been such a respite for me right now, being able to do this podcast along with the GM Shuffle. So thanks to Cadence 13. Thanks to my man Joe for doing this, because at least this is a break for all of us and able to talk about movies. Uh, as always... Please do give us some love on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe there, rate, and review. That's how we keep things going. So if you like the pod, please do do so there. Uh, we're going to start by talking about a TV show because, of course, there's no new movies coming out. So we're going to start with Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, which is one of my favorite shows on TV. Hopefully you're watching it. They're now up to Season 7 right now. The synopsis, if you haven't heard of it, breaking news on a weekly basis. Comedian John Oliver satirically covers the week in news, politics, and current events in this Emmy-winning variety series. Every single year at the Emmys, you go, oh my God, they're going to win again. They always win, at least for best show. And then Oliver has uh, picked up, obviously, Emmys as well, whether it's for writing or as an actual host. And I think this right now, with what we're dealing with being inside, they've been particularly strong. He spoke about the coronavirus pandemic before really kind of the world blew up. This was back on March 1st. And in that, he said, should you be worried? And he said, yeah, a little. I mean, you should be washing your hands for 20 seconds. You should be careful, read the news, see what's happening. This was literally, think about that, March 1st. This is when a lot of people were saying, ah, it's not a big deal. The flu is much worse. It's a hoax, et cetera, et cetera. So Oliver was two weeks ahead of, or if you want to say 10 days ahead of, I think March 11th to me is the big tipping point when Hanks got it, the NBA shut down and March Madness said they were only going to do it with no fans. Okay, so let's say 10 days in advance, John Oliver was saying, hey, be cautious about this. Then did a really funny one about sheriffs in the U.S. And since then, it has been, of course, all about coronavirus. His last four episodes about the pandemic, the government response, One American News Network, which was an amazing one he did about this ridiculous media organization out there right now, which just panders to Trump and lobs softballs at him. And no one's watching it, but Oliver pointed out why something that doesn't have a lot of popularity can, in fact, be very dangerous. And his most recent episode was about essential workers, unemployment in the U.S. The thing about John Oliver is this. He will take a very serious subject, and he will still treat it with the gravitas that it deserves, which is that people are dying. We've got to take this seriously, and there's all this misinformation and distrust being fed from the White House. Yet, within all of that, what I find, at least, is he's not... Um, 
He's doing so with some levity, which I think is critical. You know, it's one thing if you're getting a history lesson or someone's talking down to you and it's condescending. Well, nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to watch the news, but he's doing the news in a funny manner, in a satirical manner. Case in point, this most recent episode, he talked about these essential workers right now are at risk, people who work for Amazon. And he showed the clip of the guy saying, hey, listen, you know, it's important that kids get their school books, but like dildos, dildos are not essential supplies. And right now, workers at Amazon were overworked, were taking a lot of risk right now. We're not doing safety precautions in terms of social distancing to do our jobs. You don't have a union, et cetera, et cetera. So Oliver takes that soundbite, of course, and then uses it as a clip of saying, well, yeah, imagine if in 1917, George McKay is trying to save dildos. And also now you have the poster of 1917, and it's about a sex toy. Like Again, Oliver's making his point, but he's doing it in a funny manner. Um, you know, In the past, there was that whole bit about the fact that I mean, the stunts that they pull off in the show they had a Broadway sing-along, which was done. I couldn't imagine the production budget on that. But also, they bought the jockstrap that Russell Crowe wore in Cinderella Man. And then Russell Crowe got back at Oliver by donating a ton of money and established in Australia the John Oliver Koala Chlamydia Fund. I mean, this is hilarious, the kind of stuff that these guys do in terms of stunts and, and having that um, ability to do so. Part of that, I think, is the fact that clearly HBO gives him a great budget. It's a wide berth. He can tackle things he wants to. He's been sued or at least attempted to have been sued, but clearly HBO's lawyers are smart. They vet everything and said, okay, if they're going to come after us, we'll be ready to go because there's no question he is taking shots at major figures, not just the president, but people in power all over the place. Um, so I think he's not reckless in what he's doing. It's informed. And I'll say all of that with this caveat. Suppose you're somebody who leans right now. You know what? Because I particularly paid attention to this week's episode. All the information which he's citing is from the New York Times and the Washington Post, which I believe to be reputable. But if you don't, if you say, well, you know what, that's just liberal media nonsense, I don't believe it. Even then, I still think last week tonight is an entertaining, informative show because of the skill with which Oliver delivers the material, the quality of the writing. At times, I think it's a little unnecessarily profane. I mean, literally, he did a bit this week about a cat who cleans her own butthole. I'm like, I don't know if I needed to have that in there. But... I mean, listen, it's profane, it's vulgar, and it's funny. And like I said, even if you don't agree with the politics, I think you could watch it and say, well, I don't believe what he's saying 100%. I don't think this information is factually correct to me, but it's still very entertaining, and I can appreciate the high level with which he's working. Um, via the Guardian staff on his HBO show last week tonight, the comic continues to talk remotely from inside this white void. You know, in the past, they always have that great studio audience, welcome, 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 they go crazy. Well, this time they can't do that, so... You know, he's working from home, literally in front of a white board. And as this uh, note said, he's lucky to be able to work from home. 71% of Americans cannot do so. More than one in 10 workers losing their jobs in the last three weeks. He's taking aim how the government has been dealing with the fallout. And again, if you think he's just, you know, hammering Trump unnecessarily, that's one thing. I think it's accurate. But I think you can still appreciate the high level with which he's working. Last week tonight with John Oliver. If you're not watching it, you should be. For Maple Leafs, it's one of the best shows on TV. Joe? I completely agree with your point about levity and him bringing comedy to such a serious aspect. I'm also glad his show pivoted to focus just on the coronavirus. You know, I think there's merit to like, med you know, breaking down Medicare for all or third-party candidates, but... I think he does such a good job at taking a complex issue and breaking it down in a funny way that we need it. But also, the thing I really dig, Adnan, is I think he's the funniest late-night host to do it without an audience. I think a lot of these late-night hosts really rely 
on the laugh track of the audience behind them for their jokes to land, but all his jokes are just as funny, just as cutting, even without a live audience in front. What do you think? Well, that's an excellent point, because I wonder about how he'd be doing the last few weeks, but you're right, I laughed out loud at several moments this past week, and still, like a true comedian, you know, he knows how to deliver a line and wait for the beat while you're laughing at home, not to excess, but to kind of just give it that pause, move on. I agree with you. That, that's a pretty tough skill to do, you know, if you're able to do it without a live audience. That's a good point, Joe. Yeah, I think he really understands the absurdity of doing a, a show without an audience. But I think of all the late night hosts, he's he's done it the best and in stride. Yeah. Well, that's why that's going to be our Mount Rushmore late night host that's coming up a little bit later on. A couple of movies to dive into, including The Iceman, starring the great Michael Shannon. For me, he's one of the best actors working today and certainly one of the most interesting actors. The Iceman's a movie that made about $2 bucks. if you look it up on Rotten Tomatoes or IMDb. So I don't think many people saw it. It happened to be on my uh, DirecTV package, so I took a glance and... And I quite enjoyed it, but this is an intense movie. Inspired by actual events, the Iceman follows notorious contract killer Richard Kuklinski, who killed more than 100 men. Appearing to be living the American dream as a devoted husband and father, in reality, Kuklinski was a ruthless killer for hire. When finally arrested in 1986, neither his wife nor daughters had any clue about his real profession. The reason to watch this is Shannon. Like I said, nobody can do Shannon. I mean, he is just such a, a huge force on screen. He's so intimidating. You've seen him been creepy in other movies, but this time he's just scary. And I don't think he's a big guy. He's probably wearing lifts in the in the movie, but he looks like this hulking physical presence. They do a great job in terms of period detail. His wolfish goatee has. The, even the sideburns he has are menacing. I mean, he's got eyes like dark coal. Guillermo del Toro said in The Shape of Water, the film that won Best Picture, you know, one of the reasons he cast Michael, he said it was because of his eyes. He goes, they're just so dark and penetrating. And clearly, he is great at playing villains. For years, Christopher Walken and Dennis Hopper, they had the market on playing villains. No matter what, villain of fire, you got him. Well, Michael Shannon right now can play bad guys as good as anybody in the movies. And that's why my goal right now is to start a GoFundMe. I want to see Michael Shannon in a romantic comedy. That's right. Just like what Ray Fiennes did in Made in Manhattan, I want to see Michael Shannon being goof and lighty and, you know, just just ridiculously charming. Because whenever you see him in movies, he's not that. And he has that gift, by the way. I'm being facetious, but I've watched him a bunch on Fallon. Listen, he's a funny guy. He's definitely dark and twisted, but I think he's actually funnier than people would realize. So, you know, maybe if they made like a third Dumb and Dumber, because the second one was so terrible. Maybe Michael Shannon could be in that with Jim Carrey or someone like that. Or like I said, romantic comedy. Imagine him and Reese Witherspoon in a movie together. Every time he would try to kiss her, you think he's going to take a bite out of her. Bottom line is this, though. The Iceman, you've seen this subject matter before. Of course, I love mob movies and, and true crime thrillers. You've seen stories about guys hiding their dual life. But I thought it was effective because of Shannon, because he's such a great presence. And how about the supporting cast? Winona Ryder plays the wife bit of a damsel in distress type of role, maybe a little bit underwritten. I do find it hard to believe she had no idea. Her husband's making all this money. She has no idea he's mobbed up. She thinks he's working in finance. That felt like a bit of a stretch of credibility to me, but I guess if that's what happened in her life, so be it. I mean, sometimes women do turn a blind eye to their husband's misdeeds. Look at Carmela Soprano. As far as the rest of the cast, Chris Evans, that's right, Captain America, he's unrecognizable playing Mr. Freezy. I had no idea it was him until late in the movie. Had to check the credits. I'm like, yeah, oh, that is Captain America. Ray Liotta, familiar terrain, but always solid as Roy DeMeo playing his mob boss. And David Schwimmer, also unrecognizable. You know, actors love this. They love to put on a big handlebar mustache, big fake hair from the 70s, and Schwimmer clearly is having fun. Uh, John Ventimiglia, of course, played Artie Buchel in The Sopranos. He also has a small role. And James Franco shows up for two scenes. Two scenes playing a guy uh, embedded in the porn world. 
I don't want to give away too much because, of course, he's already done that with the deuce. But funny to have James Franco showing up and Stephen Dorff as well, uh, who shares the same birthday as me. He plays Kuklinski's brother. I was so fascinated by the movie, which I'm giving three Maple Leafs. I'd like to look up some more information about Richard Kuklinski. There's a documentary, which he did, I believe, from inside the prison. He was interviewed and had no remorse over the 100 people he killed. The only thing he felt bad about was that he let down his family. The movie shows him to be a devoted family man. He is caring with his daughters. He's loving towards his wife, although he is prone to some outbursts which his wife realizes, don't push him, don't ask him about his work, and then eventually things start to unravel. Dave Calhoun of Time Out says, even the always watchable Shannon can't give much life to Kuklinski's two-dimensional presence. He's little more than a series of murders and pained looks. That's a harsh review. I recommend it. Joe, I know you haven't seen it, but in terms of true crime thrillers, I think it's a worthy addition. Certainly right now, while we have time on our hands, it's something you can watch. But are you with me? Don't you want to see Michael Shannon play like a romantic comedy? One. 110%. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I really liked his role in Knives Out, just because I thought it was a, a, a departure from all these villains and menacing people that he's played. And, and have you ever seen the Funny or Die video of Michael Shannon, um, where he reads the sorority letter from the Delta Gamma sorority? <laughs> I have not. I have to see this now. Oh, man. I will send you the video. It is the funniest thing. It is the most absurd letter that the sorority sister wrote to everyone else in the sorority, and Michael Shannon just dives in 100%, nails this letter. It's the funniest thing I've ever seen him do. I will send it to you immediately after the show. Oh, I can't wait, man. Michael Shannon, this guy's an Academy Award-nominated actor, of course, was great in uh, Nocturnal Animals, uh, Revolutionary Road, and now I can't wait to see what Joe's going to send me this funnier dive video. A couple of other movies where we get to some entertainment news involving Scorsese and Seinfeld. The Hospital is a film from 1971, a black comedy but a bitter suicidal doctor played by George C. Scott, whose hospital is being destroyed by murders of several staff members, as well as the staff's own ineptness. Eventually, he falls in love with a young woman who just makes his world more confusing. It's a black satire. The witty, satirical, Academy Award-winning screenplay by Patty Shafsky makes it entertaining. It's directed by Arthur Hiller. Roger Ebert said, The Hospital is a better movie than you may have been led to believe. It has been criticized for switching tone in midstream, but maybe it's only heading for deeper, swifter waters. Maybe a little too close to home, considering what we're dealing with right now in terms of a country and with of our... Um, Obviously, medical community, and of course, love to all the first responders out there for all the work that they're doing. But I thought it was an interesting times capsule. I mean, this is 1971, all right? 1971, and this Arthur Hiller movie is showing the medical world being overrun by incompetence and a lack of funding. So it was interesting how movies can be timeless. George C. Scott was coming off a Best Actor win for Patton. He's terrific playing the bitter suicidal doctor. Early on, he's got a confessional with one of the therapists there and talks about as miserable as life is. The, the really funny scene is after he falls in love with that young woman, they sleep together. And, and before he's doing it, before he's you know prefacing it, he's talking about being impotent. And she thinks he's using that as an excuse. And he says, what do you, you think I'm going to take pride in having a limp dingus? <laughs> which may have been one of funnier lines from Patty Shafsky. If you say, Patty Shafsky, I know that name. Well, that's right. He wrote one of the greatest movies ever. That would be Network and one of the great screenplays ever. He predicted the future. You know, Don Lemon the other day on CNN was channeling that character of Peter Finch. I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. The Hospital, to me, is not one of Patty Shafsky's, you know, it's not going to match Network. And for George C. Scott, Patton was better. But I do think it's an interesting time capsule of what we're dealing with right now and a farce of that era. I'll give it two and a half Maple Leafs. Certainly, I have a penchant for 70s movies and movies of that era. 
One more movie quickly, Awakenings. You probably haven't seen it in a long time. came out in 1990. In this film, Dr. Malcolm Sarah takes a job at a Bronx psychiatric hospital. He's put in charge of several seemingly catatonic patients. Under Sarah's painstaking guidance, they begin responding to certain stimuli. That's right, L-Dopa. He tests that new drug on one of the patients. The reason to watch this is two sensational performances. Robin Williams is Dr. Malcolm Sayer playing the real-life doctor, of course, Oliver Sacks who is this bearded, introverted fellow who can't connect with human beings, but he connects with animals, and in this case, plants, and in this case, affecting these people who have been in these terrible comas. Janet Maslin, New York Times, patient in 30-year coma wake-up, sentimental simplification. I think it's a top movie to watch because it is so emotional, and Robert De Niro gives one of his best performances. He was nominated for Best Actor playing Leonard Lowe, a guy who's been in this coma forever. He takes Del Dopa, and then shockingly, he comes to life, which is why it's called Awakenings. It's directed by Penny Marshall. It's a powerful and moving story for me. I thought it was really well acted and well directed. Like I said, a tough movie to watch, but if you haven't seen it in a long time, again, considering what the dealing with right now, the hospital crisis. I found it in some ways to be an uplifting movie because it shows that there is hope even in times of despair. Although the ending is, once again, a really, really sad movie. Awakenings, Joe. How about this for uh, in terms of pedigree? Julie Kavner, who's one of the voices on The Sopranos. Penelope Ann Miller plays the love interest of De Niro. And John Hurd, speaking of a guy who always played a lot of good villains, you remember him, of course, from Home Alone. He was great as Vin McKazian, too, in The Sopranos before he killed himself. Awakenings, 30-year anniversary of that film. It's amazing, and you're right. It's it it is heartbreaking. It's inspiring. The ending is is great, and the performances are good. This is the same year that Robin Williams put out Cadillac Man. If you remember that movie, <laughs> and I think this is the time of his career where he was really starting to branch into serious roles. And it's amazing that he was able to put out Cadillac Man the same year as Awakening. So, uh, yeah, I love it. All I remember of Cadillac Man is there's one season where like he literally slides into a woman and he goes, and Strawberry slides into home. That, this is what I remember about <laughs> Cadillac Man. That's, I can't speak much else to the movie. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. No, all I remember is I remember watching it as a kid and thinking, he has the hairiest arms of anyone I have ever seen because <laughs> the, the whole movie is just forearms, his forearms, you know? <laughs> It's funny you mentioned that. He definitely did a bit in one of his stand-ups about how the fact he would go to the San Francisco Zoo and the apes and gorillas would start pointing at him and say, how come you're not in here with us? Because the fact he was <laughs> such an unbelievably hairy guy. All right. Those are our movies to review. Awakenings, The Iceman, uh, The Hospital, and of course, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. The news of entertainment is coming up next along with our special guest, John Pessa. Well, now time for some entertainment news. And what is it about my man Martin Scorsese and just crazy budgets? Holding talks now with Apple and Netflix to produce a new film. That's right. I couldn't wait. Killers of the Flower Moon, an adaptation of a book which came out three years ago. It's the Osage murders and the birth of the FBI. It looks at the murders of the 1920s took place in an Oklahoma Native American reservation, which led to a major federal investigation. The killing of the Osage Native Americans was apparently an open secret at the time, but everyone turned a blind eye. So the movie, oh my God, Marty, Leo, and Robert De Niro. Paramount Pictures was going to do it, but here we go again. Paramount, don't forget, was going to do The Irishman. But that budget went north of $100 million, and so quickly Marty and company said, all right, we'll go to Netflix. Well, now apparently the studio got cold feet. The movie's budget ballooned to more than $200 million. So now he's having conversations with Netflix once again, and this time Apple. Imagine if Apple gets in on the movie game. The Irishman, by the way, estimated $173 million. was released by Netflix. Ten Academy Award nominations went 0 for 10, but five Golden Globe nominations as well. 
Something about budgets and Marty. I mean, listen, he's, he's in his mid-70s now. He wants his money. He wants to make his first ever Western in his own words. Maybe, Joe, he'll have a reunion with Netflix. Or maybe, first time you got Martin Scorsese film released by Apple. I, I think this would be a really smart move by Apple to invest in this movie. I know, um, I, I just feel like the streaming service hasn't made the splash that they were hoping to. They had the morning show, which had a little bit of acclaim and credibility. But I, I, I think... If they were able to lock in this deal, this would give them some more notoriety and help establish them as a streaming service. Yeah, you're right. Jennifer Aniston, Reese Witherspoon, they did get uh, a little bit of buzz. There's Steve Carell, the TV show, but movies, that's a different matter. Jerry Seinfeld, one of my brother's favorite comics. Who doesn't love Seinfeld? More laughs to Netflix. Latest stand-up special, 23 Hours to Kill. Uh, the streamer is launching the long, hour-long special Netflix on May 5th. It was filmed at the Beacon Theater in New York City. It was part of the Seinfeld co-creators and star residency at the venue, the last few shows of which were curtailed by the coronavirus. The title, by the way, is a reference to a line often repeated by the Boo movie creator and a star that stand-ups spend one hour a day on stage and the rest of the day waiting for that moment. Second stand-up special for Netflix after Jerry before Seinfeld, which saw him combine stand-up at the comic strip live in New York and also talk about his influences like Bruce, uh, Lenny Bruce, of course, and George Carlin. He also had a release on HBO, I'm telling you for the last time. So for a Seinfeld fan, check out 23 Hours to Kill coming on May 5th. And one more bit of news. Nobody was expecting out of work, exceptionally bored sports commentators, but it has been absolutely tremendous. Take a listen. Rugby commentator Nick Heath was first delighting the planet. Quickfire rundowns of everyday events. Now Andrew Cotter, a very real, very professional BBC sports person presenting the heart-racing drama of the Dog World Series. Final, And now they go, Olive away first, but a problem with Mabel's ball. That might cost her now, having to play catch-up. Both settling quickly into rhythm. You can see the contrast in styles. Mabel, heavy tail use. Happy to be alive. Everything's amazing. Olive more steady, wasting little energy. Very much of the old Labrador school. Eating's a serious business. Don't bollocks around wagging your tail. And Mabel seems just a, a little sluggish here. Perhaps more was taken out of her by the worm medicine she was given last night than we thought. But Olive focused, relentless, tasting absolutely nothing. Mabel trying... But surely a lost cause, her title defence coming to an end, Olive taking everything, nothing left but the ball to lick now. And Mabel, well, doesn't seem too upset, a bit of class there from the youngster, generous in what will surely be defeat because Olive has won now, she's taken the title back at seven and a half. Mabel looking to offer congratulations again to the dog who was her inspiration growing up. Once more wonderful to see that spirit in the game. What a final we've had here, great rivals but... Great friends. Oh, and you see the swapping of bowls at the end. Uh, join us again tomorrow. Live coverage of a snooze on the sofa, possibly. Bye for now. Thanks to Mr. Andrew Cotter's YouTube page. I mean, seriously, how funny is that? Cotter's pups, Olive and Mabel. I mean, Joe Buck has been doing this as well. If you send him clips, he's been narrating those as well. It's good to have sportscasters in my profession passing on some greater good here, Joe. Oh, it's so good. And it also just helps me as just a sports fan and someone who seeks out sports, appreciate good broadcasting. I think it accentuates the skill that is broadcasting. No doubt about it. Uh, now it's time for our special guest.
pleasure to welcome in our special guest here to Cinephile. His name is John Pessa. You can follow him on Twitter at John Pessa, J-O-N. He's a founding editor of ESPN, the magazine, nominated for a Pulitzer Prize for editing and writing an examination of the role of racism in Major League Baseball, a 45-year veteran of sports and business journalism in newspapers and magazines, also wrote a highly acclaimed book, The Game, Inside the Secret World of Major League Baseball's Power Brokers, which was a New York Times bestseller. And now he's got a new book, a biography of American icon Yogi Berra. It's called Yogi Life Behind the Mask. Thanks to our friend Claire Smith, the Hall of Famer. I was able to get a copy of the book and I devoured it in the week. It's highly entertaining and it's a real pleasure to have John joining us right now on the podcast. First and foremost, John, before we dive into the mechanics of the book and stories about Yogi and the movies, how are you handling all this and how surreal is this to work on a book for four and a half years and now all of a sudden we're dealing with a crisis the, the likes of which we haven't seen in a century? Well, um, first of all, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I've really been looking forward to speaking with you. Um, the, I live on Long Island, and uh, in my county alone, there are 22,000 cases and more than 1,000 deaths. Um, it's, I've always wondered what it would be like to live in a war zone, and this, this I guess, is as close as it's, it, it comes. We're locked in our house. We're, nobody, everyone's afraid to go out. And the the stores are are empty, um, and everyone is wearing masks. Um, so it is it's very surreal, and the the realization that this is not something that's just like okay, it'll be a couple of weeks and we go back to normal. The realization that this is going to go on for a long time, and I don't think anyone knows what normal is. Um, so we basically been been working. Thankfully, we can work from home. Um, and binge watching. Um, I fell in love with Outlander. I think we finished six seasons in you know in four days. <laughs> so so you know that that's how we've been handling it here. I hope everything is good by you. No, I appreciate it. We're in uh, Bergen County here, Hohokus, so we're right in the teeth of it. Obviously, it's with the proximity to New York City. And uh, let's start there, actually, with regards to Yogi, because you know, having worked at ESPN for nine years, lived in West Hartford, nice area, but we love Jersey and we love this area. And one of the parts I love most about your book was how Yogi was fell so in love with New Jersey, whether or not it was Woodcliffe Lake or Tenafly, which we thought about living in, but Montclair, which is a wonderful area for those who don't know North Jersey very well. You know, it's like 25 minutes to the city, so it made a lot of sense for Yogi all those years, not only playing for the Yankees, but post-career living in Montclair because it's a really nice area with which to raise your family. And uh, I just thought geographically, hey, this is so cool. I'm so close to this place, Montclair, where Yogi seems like he's Montclair's most beloved son. I mean, not now after reading your book, I want to go to Montclair, hopefully, God willing, once we get all through this and see whatever uh, testaments they have to Yogi Berra and his life there. He loved, absolutely loved New Jersey. I mean, he loved growing up on the hill, the Italian section in St. Louis. It was tough for him to leave. But uh, Phil Rizzuto convinced him that, that coming to, uh, to the New York area, and Phil lived, already lived in New Jersey, and they were, they were best friends. And, you know, come and live here. There's, it's a beautiful place, great place to raise a family, and your opportunities um, for outside income, which baseball players needed in those days. Um, is much greater here than in St. Louis, um, and he and he just fell in love. And Montclair is a is a beautiful area. 
um, some, some just a, you know terrific parks and libraries and the Salvation Army charity there. I mean, it really is a very diverse and a very interesting town, and it has the campus of Montclair State University, which was a small teacher's college when his older son went there, 4,500, and now they have about 20,000 students, um, and it's a uh, it, it houses one of the one of the things that it houses is the Yogi Berra Museum, which is which is modeled. Um, because the same architect did it on Cooperstown, and it's just such a cool um, place to go and and see. You know, Yogi was living history. Started in the Depression through World War II, where he volunteered for a secret mission to go. You know, at D Day, to uh, moving out to the suburbs and playing on the on the great Yankee teams and being the best player in baseball probably for the first five years of the fifties. And, um, yeah, he absolutely loved New Jersey. And he used to joke that it was, you know, one bridge to, to get to uh, New Jersey, I mean, to Yankee Stadium. And when he was uh, with the Mets for 10 years, where he took the team to the World Series, um, that was two bridges. You know, so, so he was happy when he went back to the Yankees for many reasons. And one of them was he didn't have to go over two bridges in New York City. <laughs> That's it. It's a very, uh, it's not a yogiism, but that does make sense. Something he would say. Very simple guy. He just loved to play baseball. And it's amazing how, you know, from the baseball perspective, how Branch Rickey got it so wrong. Obviously, for good reason. He has lionized in baseball circles for what he did for Jackie Robinson, the Gas House Gang, etc. But completely missed on Yogi. You thought Garagiola would be the much better player. And as you said, Yogi, for many years, overshadowed by DiMaggio and Mickey Mantle, but for many years could be argued was the best player in baseball and certainly one of the great catchers of all time, along with Johnny Bench. But for the purposes of cinephile, I know you and I could talk baseball all day, but as for the purposes of cinephile in this podcast, the movie stuff I was particularly taken with, the seven-year itch, tell me about, and obviously Marilyn Monroe, we all know the famous scene of her skirt flying up, but tell me about Yogi in the movies, because for a guy who, as you said, is an American icon, I wouldn't necessarily think he has a great screen presence like a Cary Grant or someone of that era, but people love seeing him in the movies because he was such a likable guy. Absolutely. He, the first movie he was in was, was uh, The Seven-Year Itch, and he was so nervous. He was, uh, I think, about 25 when they did that, and he was so nervous that he asked the director, Billy Wilder, if he could um, cut his lines because uh, uh, he did it with Eddie Lopat, and Lopat had one line and Yogi had three, um, so he asked Wilder if they could switch. And they did, um, and you know there was a famous scene with with Marilyn Monroe. And one of the interesting things about that scene was um, Joe DiMaggio was part of the crowd, and everybody knows that he was upset with that uh, and with the, the skirt flying up. But the New York crowd made it so so loud that Wilder had to reshoot it in um, Hollywood, and it took forty takes to get it to get it right. Um, but he also, you know, he was asked what was it like to be, uh, around Marilyn Monroe and, you know, Yogi and, and Carmen, his wife went to dinner with Marilyn and, and Joe DiMaggio. And when, when Yogi was asked, uh, so what was Marilyn and what was the dinner like? He goes, Hey, we got four really big shrimp. And, you know, people laughed and it kind of fit the Yogiism type thing. But I think what it really was, was Yogi, you know, Yogi knew how much, um, especially mega stars like a DiMaggio and a, and a Monroe, um, tre- treasure and guard their privacy. And I think that he was basically saying, you know, uh, my, our dinner was our dinner. And, you know, you can ask about a lot of things, but that, that's, you know, that, that was between us. 
And then, then in 1961, he was in um, That Touch of Mink with Cary Grant and Doris Day. And, the, and Mickey Mantle and, and Roger Maris, and he were in the scene with, in the Yankee dugout. And Yogi was so good that he, he kind of freelanced it and put a lot more into it than, than it was called for. And the director just loved it and left it all in. So, you know, Yogi kind of grew into his movie career. Yeah, and it's one thing to say, listen, we're going to put him in the movies. Obviously, he's a very famous face. You know, the Yankees are a brand unto themselves. Guy's got more World Series rings than anybody, and so you're, why wouldn't we put Yogi in there? Obviously, an unmistakable face, unmistakable look. And one of the, the great parts of your book is you, you have that through line throughout, which is that a lot of people made fun of him for his looks, and he kind of shrugged it off, but clearly this must have hurt him. I mean, when you're being described as like an ape all the time, obviously it's going to hurt you. But, of course, the last laugh was uh, with Yogi because of the fact he was able to cash in so many times Times off the field. You mentioned the movies, and the one I was really surprised by was a movie review show. Because a part of me says, "Hang on a second. Yogi seems like a fairly simplistic guy. You know, his lovely wife kind of got him into more reading and opera and stuff like that. Yogi just wanted to, to read the sports pages and play sports, and that's about it. A little bit of gambling, have a couple of drinks, that's it. But the fact he actually did a movie review show, a part of me says, "God, maybe it would make sense. He's not exactly Siskel and Ebert in breaking down cinema verite, but." He is a very honest guy and great with a quote. So tell me about Yogi as a movie critic. Right. Well, actually, this idea was with a friend of his that dated back to his rookie season named Jack Vellante, who was a, uh, a promising baseball player um, who Joe McCarthy said, uh, you're not going to make it. So he went to Lafayette and became a, a, a legendary uh, advertising man. And in 1988, he came up with this idea that Yogi could do a 90-second uh, movie review. He'd ask a bunch of questions on the, uh, you know, off from offset. Yogi would be sitting in a director's chair, and they'd wrap it around the commercial. So the first beginning was they asked questions, and then in, after the commercial, he rated it single, double, triple, home run, or strikeout. And, um, you know, when, when, when uh, Volante pitched the story, Yogi said, we'll see, which in Yogi speak is no. So Volante did it a second time with Carmen sitting there. And he, he said, listen, you've got to do 13 of these and uh, you'll get a, um, uh, $100,000 a year. And Carmen said, oh, okay, I want a new kitchen. Yogi, you're doing it. So he did, and he loved it, and he, you know, and he did fire off, you know, a, a bunch of yogiisms. I mean, they asked him when he saw Fatal Attraction. They asked him, uh, you know, were you scared of the scary parts? And he said, uh, no, only when they were scary. Um, and he kept calling Glenn Coase close Glenn Cove, so they had to cut that part of it. Um, and he just, you know, he was honest and, and he started, the reason that Volante had this idea was he used to entertain the Yankees in the DiMaggio days with his movie reviews that he would give in the clubhouse and the players were all laughing and, um, and they all followed it because they knew how much Yogi loved movies, especially Westerns. So he did this for three years, 13 shows a year. Um, all of them are, are funny and all of them are, are pretty much dead on in terms of his, uh, his take on, on the, uh, on the movie. Um, and he made himself for three seasons, $300,000. So he was not a bad businessman either. About to say, uh, Peter Travers of Rolling Stone is going to hear that and go, are you kidding me? How much is this guy making back in the day? Do some movie reviews? And clearly, and I think you're right about Yogi as a businessman. I mean, he was not... 
I don't think he was greedy, but he wasn't going to turn down any money when it was offered him, whether it was endorsements, whether it was doing stuff with Rizzuto. I got the bowling alley in Jersey. I mean, there was he was smart about making use of his time, which brings me to the, the part of him as a father, which I, I, I don't know why, but I bookmarked this, John, because I kept laughing at it, and I may use it on my own children. Uh, Yogi's favorite shows, Sanford and Son, Hogan's Heroes, Mission Impossible. Yogi truly cherished time off during the season. Even as a coach, he often keeps himself unless he's on the golf course. Carmen wasn't surprised that a Dale asked his father to play catch, only to have Yogi turn him away. That's what you have brothers for, Yogi told his son. I, I don't mean to indict him over one quote, but that is funny to me that I have this image of jovial Yogi, and yet he kind of was like a cranky guy who didn't want to have people bothering him, much less his kids when he's trying to watch his favorite TV shows. You know, I think that, uh, you know, you, we were in the same business, and, you know, everyone thinks that this is, these are great jobs, and they are. But if you're always, every time you go to a party, if you're always asked about sports, it gets a little tedious, doesn't it? And, uh, you know, baseball, Yogi loved baseball, but it was also his job. I mean, he did, he played baseball all the time, uh, was at the stadium all the time. And when he had some time off, he had his ways of relaxing. And, you know, Dale was the youngest of the kids, so he had older brothers. And it, it was an honest answer. You know, that's what you have brothers for. You know, let, let them play. And they were all good athletes. Um, but yeah, Yogi, you know, he didn't have a lot of off time, but he used it wisely. I'll, I'll tell you what, Branch Rickey, um, really made Yogi's career in so many ways. I mean, if Branch Rickey would have signed him, he pro- he would have been Larry Barra, probably playing left field for the St. Louis Cardinals, a great player, um, maybe wins a world series or two. Um, but that's it, you know, versus who Yogi Berra became. And even the name Yogi, which is for marketing purposes, is spectacular because everybody knows who Yogi is. If he said Larry, Yogi would have been the first person that came to mind. Or you would wonder, you know, Larry Berra, Larry Bird, Larry Brown. I mean, who, which, which Larry are we talking about? But Yogi, there's only one Yogi. And when Branch Rickey turned him down, he played American Legion ball for two years. And the American Legion team one day went to the movies. There was a newsreel about India. Um, the yogis in, the, in there sat the same way with their arms folded and their legs folded the same way that yogi sit, sits before he goes up to bat. And Bobby Hoffman, who ended up being a utility player for the New York Giants, and gives him the nickname Yogi, and it stuck. And Yogi fell in love with it, and from that day on, except for his family, which still called him Lottie, um, old, or, you know, Yogi was his name, and just... What, a, what an unbelievably great marketing gift um, that someone bestowed upon him. Um, but you're right. I mean, he was, he knew, you know, back then, baseball players, I mean, he topped out at $65,000 in 1957, which translates, I looked it up, it translates to about $450,000 in today's money, which is a nice salary, but it's not the 20, 30, it's not the 30 million that, that uh, Giancarlo Stanton is making. And, you know, those guys in their off-season had to work. He worked at selling Christmas trees. He worked selling hardware in Sears. He, you know, he worked, um, uh, uh, you know, made Yoohoo into a big national brand um, and worked on that. Uh, he was always working in the off-season. That's what all the players did. 
Yeah, it definitely was a different time back then. We're talking to John Pessa. His book is Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask. I encourage everyone to go pick it up or order, of course, online. That brings a question, of course, John, of Yogi Bear, because of the question I often get from people who are non-baseball fans, hey, Yogi Bear, is that from Yogi Bear or Chicken of the Egg? Which one came first? And what I found illuminating in your book is Yogi Bear was not amused by Yogi Bear and Hanna-Barbera coming up with that character. Not amused at all. And, you know, Yogi didn't get mad in public or that much in private, but he didn't get mad um, except if you would, uh, if you would call him Yogi Bear by mistake. And, you know, Hanna-Barbera, which back then was a fledgling animation company and was just, and, and Huckleberry Hound was their first big vehicle. And they brought in a character on that show, Yogi Bear. And it was, I mean, how many, why would you name Yogi, uh, you know, a character Yogi, um, except for one of the most popular players or people in the entire United States in the 50s? I mean, Yogi was all over television when television was just growing up. So the, the entire country knew who this guy was. He was on national commercials. He was always in the World Series which the whole country treated as a Super Bowl for the seven to ten days that the World Series was played, and he was on in the World Series all the time. There was the game of the week in baseball, which meant a lot back then, because baseball was basically the only sport people cared about um, on a national scale, and the Yankees were always on the game of the week. And he was always on the Perry Como show or the Ed Sullivan show waving or What's My Line or playing opposite Dick Van Dyke in the, in the Phil Silver show. Um, so yes, he was, he was not happy and they actually considered, um, suing, um, Hannah Barbera, but I think, um, since Yogi was not his given name and, um, you know, trademark or copyright infringement didn't really, there wasn't anything there. And I think Yogi learned a, a lesson early in his career when he faced so much abuse and so much, um, mockery about his looks, about his perceived lack of intelligence, um, that, uh, you know, it, don't, uh, don't argue it, you make it worse. So he just kind of left it, left it off, and, you know, Yogi Bear was there, and, and hey, you know what, it, it, it pushed the name Yogi out there, and it didn't, so that didn't hurt. <laughs> exactly, there was a silver lining <laughs> to it. I, I'm so glad when I was reading the book, John, you didn't devote like an entire chapter to the sayings, because I feel like that often overrides the story of Yogi Berra, and that's why I'm so happy that, you know, of course you include them along the way, it's part of the legend and lore of him, but... As he famously said, I didn't say half the things I said. Garagiola made so much money off of just telling Yogi stories, whether falsified or not. But of all the Yogiisms, is there one that you particularly enjoy? Because I do think you can observe a lot by watching is an all-time classic. It is. I mean, there are... I think Yogi, Yogi in, in talking to his friends, uh, said you know probably 25% of all the things out there were things that I really said. And... You know, one of the reasons that the yogiisms came out as yogiisms is he grew up um, speaking Italian in his household. His mother didn't, didn't uh, speak English. Um, everyone on the hill spoke Italian. Um, and uh, so he was, you know, English was, you know, let's just call them language one, language one A. And, you know, the different cadence, the different kind of syntax in, in Italian makes you think and leave words and put words in different positions um, so that what he's, what he's saying makes sense. There's a word or two sometimes missing. Um, uh, and then you mentioned Gary Jola. Gary Jola was, was 
like a brother to, to Yogi. They knew each other. They lived across the street. Yogi was five years old. Garajola was four years old. Garajola said he never knew a day in his life that he didn't know Yogi Berra. And he uh, was thought to be the better player by Branch Rickey. Um, wasn't. He always said he wasn't. And, uh, but he also had injuries, so he retired early. And Joe, from a young age, had, had the gift of, of, of gab. I mean, he could, he could really speak. He could spin stories. And Yogi and was enormously famous in the 50s. And, you know, people wanted to hear stories about Yogi Berra. And Joe Garagiola rose through the ranks coming up as a, you know, being the color man on, the, on St. Louis Cardinal broadcasts. And, and doing the old banquet circuit, which I don't think even exists anymore. If I say that to young people, they look at me and say, what the hell is the banquet circuit? Um, and moved his way up uh, the, the line until he ended up being hosted at Today Show and, and Johnny Carson, one of the main Johnny Carson subs. And, you know, people would ask Yogi if it bothered him that, you know, Joe kind of made a career, you know, playfully poking fun at him. And he said, nope, you know, anything I can do for Joe you know, that's great. And he also is wise enough to know if Joe's talking to a Today audience, that doesn't hurt Yogi either. Exactly. It was a win all around. There's no doubt about it. John Pessa is the author of Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask. If you're a baseball fan, I felt like I had a pretty good handle on what he did with the Yankees, but I didn't appreciate any of the stuff as a manager. Like you said, the fact he took the Mets to the World Series, his relationship with Steinbrenner, uh, how that thawed after a terrible uh, situation where both those guys just wouldn't speak to each other, then the boss comes to his museum. All that stuff is richly detailed in the book, and as John has illustrated, lots of interesting stuff behind the scenes, whether it's movies, his wife Carmen. You know, I found particularly poignant, here's my last question for you, but I found particularly poignant is the Dale Barra stuff, because I'm reading it going, yeah, I mean, it's, he's obviously a very uh, honorable guy and a good guy and a fairly simple guy, but there's no real tragedy here. And then I got to the Dale Barra section. I said, oh, my God. I mean, drug abuse can impact any family. And what Yogi went through with his son, Dale, I thought was particularly poignant. Oh, it was it was heartbreaking, and as it would be for any parent. I mean, Dale ended up um, being uh, getting hooked on cocaine when he was a player in Pittsburgh. And, you know, the huge difference for, uh, you know, between Yogi and any parent is that when his kid gets, um, uh, gets uh, picked up on, on cocaine charges, it's, it's national news. And that was the Pittsburgh drug trials were big national news in the late 80s. And, uh, you know, Dale uh, promised that he would get off it. And Yogi is in Houston as a coach and gets a phone call and finds out that Dale just got busted in the 25-person uh, cocaine ring in New Jersey. And he ends up getting a, a, a uh, essentially what, what would be a suspended sentence and does rehab. And he's uh, apparently you know, kicked the habit. And then one day, someone, a friend uh, gives them a call and says, um, Dale's back on cocaine. And they called Yogi and Carmen called the family meeting and Yogi turns to his son and says, this has to end. If it doesn't end, you're no longer part of the family. It will break my heart, but we can't keep going down this road. You need to stop. And, and Dale stopped, you know, right after that. And God, as a parent, you know, I, I know you have four kids. I have two kids. That is just, you know, you hurt worse when something happens to your kid than you do for yourself. And that just had to be so hard for him and Carmen to go through, um, especially since much of it was public. Um, and so, 
you know, he led a, a, a great life, um, but it wasn't without its challenges and it wasn't without its real challenges, like, you know, dealing with uh, cocaine addiction with his youngest son. Definitely. It was really powerful stuff, and it's a tremendous book. Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask. My big thanks to John Pesso. You can follow him on Twitter, J-O-N-P-E-S-S-A-H. Get the book right now online. Unfortunately, bookstores, we know it's very tough to get outside and go get them. But seriously, go online, get it on Amazon, wherever you find your books, because it's a sensational read. John, can't thank you enough for the time. Please stay safe, my friend. Same here. Uh, you too. I know New Jersey's getting hit real hard right now, so, so you be very safe. Take care, and it's been a pleasure. All right, Mel Rushmore, a late-night TV host, because of the fact we focused on last week tonight and John Oliver. You think, well, how many of them could there be? I'm going to run down the list here and jog your memory. Arsenio Hall, Bill Maher, Carson Daly, Chelsea Handler, Conan O'Brien, Craig Ferguson, Craig Kilborn, David Letterman, Dick Cavett, Jack Parr, Tom Snyder, James Corden, Jay Leno, Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel, Joan Rivers, John Oliver, Johnny Carson, Larry King, Larry Sanders, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, Morton Downey Jr., Seth Meyers, Space Ghost, and Stephen Colbert. The heavyweight champion has to be David Letterman. Of course, late night with David Letterman on NBC. Just ask my buddy Scott Rogowski how influential that show was. I mean, that spawned a, a generation of comics. The late show on CBS also still was really funny when he went there in 1993 and briefly was number one. But honestly, the Dave's, I mean, the postmodern comedy's ironic sensibility. You can't touch the wit of Mr. David Letterman. That's number one for me. I'm going to put Larry Sanders, even though he's fictional. That's right, my man Gary Shanling playing... Rather than actually being a talk show host, at one point, NBC was offering five years, $20 million to replace Letterman in that late night slot, the 1230 a.m. slot. Uh, and instead, he said, no, I'm going to keep doing the Larry Sanders show. I'd rather do a show about a fake late night talk show host than be an actual late night talk show host. He nailed the combination of the, the, the star's neediness and insecurity, his vanity. It was no holds barred. It was honest. And it was also really, really funny. Uh, that's two so far for me. I'm going to go ahead with John Oliver because of the fact I featured him. I must admit, I, I never really saw much of The Daily Show. just uh, wasn't something that was on my radar. So I wouldn't know enough about John Stewart. I wasn't introduced to John Oliver via John Stewart. I know for many of you, you may, may uh, go with Stewart in this case. But I will go with Oliver because of how much I like last week tonight. That leaves just one slot left. Tough to really figure out where to go with here. But honestly... I just want to shout out Craig Kilborn because of how funny he is. Just listen to him on my buddy Ryan Rosillo's podcast. If you haven't listened to it, it's really good and really smart. So I don't even know how much I actually watched him back in the day, but I just miss having Craig Kilborn around. I feel like he didn't do nearly enough for us. So that's my offbeat choice for number four. Letterman, Larry Sanders, John Oliver, and Craig Kilborn. Apologies to Jay Leno and others who just missed the cut. Jimmy Kimmel, I probably should put on there. You know what? I'm changing my mind. Jimmy Kimmel's number four. Craig Kilborn, honorable mention. Letterman, Larry Sanders, John Oliver, Jimmy Kimmel, honorable mention, Kilborn. Joe? Oh, man. I Just to your point on Craig Kilborn, I went back and listened to that episode um, uh, that he was on, and he he's just as funny as ever. It's, it, it's such a great interview by Ryan Rosillo. 
Um, for mine, I will. I, I, I have to agree with you on David Letterman. I was a Letterman guy growing up versus Leno every day. I think he was way f- better with the interviews, off the cuff, funnier. So I'll go with Letterman. I'll also go with uh, Conan O'Brien. Um, he, especially when he was on Late Night, he he was so silly and so so absurd in the best way possible. Um, and then I will go Johnny Carson just because. His influence on late night as a whole and comedy as a whole uh, that has just rippled through the years. And then my dark horse pick is going to be Craig Ferguson, um, mainly because his co-host was a robot. So that was pretty fun. <laughs> I think you just appreciate the Scottish brogue. I mean, that's definitely off the radar. I mean, I didn't know any people who watch Ferguson. I would see him in interviews here and there and think he was funny. But you're right. He never really had the cachet of... Uh, Kilborn or Conan or obviously even Le- Le- I mean Leno was always number one even though his humor was very you know Midwest down the middle very kind of vanilla like you said but that's interesting Ferguson I, Carson I mean obviously he's the heavyweight champion you feel like how the hell can you do a Mount Rushmore late night host and not have Johnny Carson before my time but you're right whenever I see clips I'm always laughing I love Karnak I mean Karnak is an unbelievable bit and Conan you're, uh, Conan you're right Joe absurdist is a good word for it he was definitely the silliest I thought he always took a lot of chances with his bits. I mean, how can you not like a guy who has, has a character of a masturbating bear? I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like his uh, his like field pieces that he would create too. When, I don't know if you ever saw the bit where he went and played 19th century baseball and just like fell into that character and the language from like the late 1890s while playing baseball. It's the funniest thing I'd ever seen. Wow, I gotta look this up, man. First, we got Michael Shannon, funny or die. Now Conan playing a 19th century ball player. This is good stuff. Old Haas Radborn. I can't wait to see this. Uh, that was <laughs> Joe's list. He's given love there to Conan, Carson, Ferguson, and Letterman. I'm going Letterman, Larry Sanders, John Oliver, Jimmy Kimmel, Leno. By the way, I do appreciate the fact, like he said, he was always day in, day out. Was a reliable guy, leading with my chin. Funny book, but uh, yeah, didn't always hit the hit the mark for us. All right, now it's time for Total Recall. Uh, once again, give us feedback, Cinephile Pod, Adnan S. Ferk, let us know what you like, what you don't like. 2002 Oscars, Total Recall. So these are the films from 2001. A Beautiful Mind won Best Picture. Joe, what else was nominated? Gosford Park, In the Bedroom, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, and Moulin Rouge. Never seen Moulin Rouge. My wife loves it. I couldn't get through it, although I appreciate Baz Luhrmann's ability as a stylist. I'm going to go with In the Bedroom. It was a really tough drama. They don't make those kitchen sink dramas like they used to. You know, it fits in with like something like Ordinary People. Uh, I thought it was a devastating drama. God, Sissy Spacek and Tom Wilkinson together. Really, really solid drama. That, to me, was the best picture there. But I really did love A Beautiful Mind. I think it's a sweet story and a triumphant one and a moving one. So I don't have an issue with the Academy that it won Best Picture, but my choice would have been In the Bedroom. I like that. I am going to agree with the Academy and go with A Beautiful Mind. I think overall... All around, just a great, great movie. The story was great. So I'll go with The Beautiful Mind. All right. Best director was Ron Howard for A Beautiful Mind. What else was nominated? Ridley Scott for Black Hawk Down. Robert Altman for Gosford Park. Peter Jackson, Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Rings. And David Lynch, Mulholland Drive. I'd like to get one of David Lynch just because he's had such a bizarre career and he's been such an iconoclast. I mean, you look at his movies, Blue Velvet, how he didn't win an Oscar for that movie. I mean, with Dennis Hopper, don't you look at me. He's got that gas mask on. I mean, like Lynch is one of those forces 
whether you look at Twin Peaks or any of his work, I mean, it's just a singular talent. And Mulholland Drive was certainly a creepy movie. It's not one that I felt the need to revisit, but I did enjoy seeing it once and the whole issue of doppelgangers and the Hitchcockian suspense. I will go with Ron Howard because I think it was just a sturdy film. It was a well-made studio movie, but a part of me wishes that David Lynch had won. He did win an honorary Oscar. I think it was actually this year, but I wish he'd actually won a competitive Oscar at some point in his career because guys like that on the margins of the film world don't often get recognized. I agree. If you're going to go with Ron Howard, I will go with David Lynch for the exact reasons you talked about. Such a weird career, everything from Twin Peaks to, I think his first movie was Eraserhead. Have you ever seen that? I haven't. That was his first movie, though. You're right. Just I, For the poster alone, it was crazy. Oh, it's not. He came out years later and said that he made it about becoming a father. But I'll give it to David Lynch, not so much for Mulholland Drive, but just his overall career. All right. Best actor was Denzel Washington for Training Day. Who else was nominated? Russell Crowe for Beautiful Mind, Sean Penn, I Am Sam, Will Smith for Ali, and Tom Wilkinson for In the Bedroom. Uh, this is appalling that Sean Penn was nominated for I Am Sam. I mean, this reminds me of what uh, Robert Downey Jr. was saying in Tropic Thunder. You can't go full retard. But I mean, that's a quote from the movie, not my own personal opinion. So I'm surprised that Sean Penn was even nominated because I, I couldn't even get through I Am Sam. I thought it was just a such a hackneyed movie and just so pandering. But um, regardless of that, Denzel should not have won for Training Day. He should have won for Malcolm X. Of course, he won for Glory. Maybe he should have won for Fences as well, but definitely not for Training Day. I like the fact he went villain, and it is different. Okay, Denzel's doing Scarface. I got it, but there's no way he should have won an Oscar for it. I would have said Tom Wilkinson for In the Bedroom, or maybe even Will Smith for Ali. I mean, think about Ali, how tough a character that is. This is an iconic figure of the 20th century, and I thought Will Smith was the best part of the movie. At times, it was a little bit unfocused and opaque in my mind, the way that Michael Mann directed it. But Will Smith was pretty captivating, so I'll either go with Wilkinson or Will Smith. Uh, Russell Crowe, by the way, very good in the movie, but he'd already won for Gladiator, so I'm okay with just a nomination. Joe? I will go with Russell Crowe for A Beautiful Mind, just how he plays someone who has schizophrenia, uh, but I will agree with you. Will Smith and Ali, I think he was really good, especially that you know, that era of Ali and everything leading up to the rumble in the jungle. I thought he did a really great job, but I will go with Russell Crowe. Best actress to me was one of the best performances by an actress I've ever seen. Halle Berry, Monsters Ball. I was thrilled when she won. She absolutely should have won. But who else was nominated? Judy Dench for Iris. Nicole Kidman from Moulin Rouge. Sissy Spacek for In the Bedroom. And Renee Zellweger for Bridget Jones's Diary. Yeah, never got through Bridget Jones's Diary, uh, Renee Zellweger. But, uh, you know, Sissy Spacek, again, really good in the bedroom. I mean, I, listen, I wanted to win Best Picture, so... I would have been happy if Wilkinson or Spacek were nominated. But to me, Halle Berry was just heartbreaking as a mom dealing with unimaginable tragedy and monsters balls. She knocked it out of the park in that movie. I agree with you and I agree with the Academy. I will also say Halle Berry. How about Best Supporting Actor? Jim Broadbent for Iris. Who else was nominated? Ethan Hawke for Training Day. Ben Kingsley for Sexy Beast. Ian McKellen, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, and John Voight for Ali playing Howard Cosell. I was about to say, our man Lombardi loves Howard Cosell. Make sure you listen to the GM Shuffle. We can talk all about Howard Cosell. I forgot that John Voight was Oscar-nominated for his performance. That's crazy to me. Uh, but he was very good at uh, imitating the often imitated, never duplicated Howard Cosell. My eyes jumped up because I love Ethan Hawke, and I want him to win an Oscar, and I thought he was really good in Training Day. But honestly, Ben Kingsley in Sexy Beast is just ferocious. You know, there's rare you get actors like this who are almost bipolar. Like, Kingsley can either play a saint in Gandhi or a, just a, a cutthroat villain in Sexy Beast. 
He's so vicious and menacing and also really funny in the way that British gangsters can be. I mean, the way he's just calling Ray Winstone a cunt the entire movie, and calling him Porky Pig, and I mean, it's just so demeaning, <laughs> kicking him in the face. I mean, it's just, it's, it's an awesome movie. I love Ben Kingsley and Sexy Beast. Oh, man, I've never seen Sexy Beast, but I'll have to check it out now. Um, just because you didn't go Ethan Hawke, I also am a huge Ethan Hawke fan, so I'm going to nominate uh, him for Training Day. I wish he had one for that role. All right, good call. I mean, it always is hard to play against the guy who's chewing up the scenery, and Hawk is really convincing as a vulnerable cop who's trying to do the right thing. Best Supporting Actress was Jennifer Connelly for A Beautiful Mind. What else was nominated? We have Helen Mirren for Gossard Park, Maggie Smith for Gossard Park, Marissa Tomei for In the Bedroom, and Kate Winslet for Iris. I really did like Kate Winslet and Iris, a strong supporting performance in a sweet movie. Judy Dench and Broadbent also nominated, and of course, Broadbent won. So clearly, the Academy loved their uh, trio of performances. But I thought Jennifer Connelly really was sweet and touching, uh, playing a woman standing by her husband, battling schizophrenia. That's a tough performance, and I thought she was really good, particularly, I mean, the steam of crow and the baby in the bath. I mean, it was, uh, I thought she really was excellent. 100% agree. I would give it to Jennifer Connelly and agree with the Academy on this nomination. Yeah. Also, I can't speak to Gosford Park. I, I I think I watched it, but I couldn't tell you anything about it now. I know Altman's a legend, but I, I mean, twin nominations are supporting actors. I can't get behind either of those. All right. A couple more categories here for you. Best screenplay written directly for the screen. Gosford Park won. Julian Fellows, as I just told you, I don't remember much of the movie, so I'm shocked that he won. Uh, what else was nominated, Joe? We have Amelie, Memento, Monsters Ball, and The Royal Tenenbaums. So this raises three questions. How the hell were three of the best movies of that year not nominated for Best Picture? The Royal Tenenbaums, Monsters Ball, and Memento are easily three of the best movies of the year. God, I want to recast the entire Best Picture. For me now, I'd go A Beautiful Mind in the Bedroom and those three movies. See A Moulin Rouge, see A Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring, and see A Gosford Park. God, that's astonishing to me. But three of those I love. Royal Tenenbaums is, to me, my favorite Wes Anderson movie. It's so funny and yet so touching. Surprisingly, at the end, Monsters Ball, not only Halle Berry knocking to the park, but an amazing script by Milo Adika and Will Rokos, but it's got to be Memento. It's my favorite Christopher Nolan movie. How original was that story? How ingenious was the plotting? How the hell did he not win an Oscar along with his brother Jonathan Nolan, losing to Julian Fellows for Gosford Park? That is appalling that Memento didn't win. Yeah, this is upsetting. Uh, I mean, Amelie, I, I love too. I love the score for Amelie. Memento is so original in the way Christopher Nolan lays out that story. Monsters Ball is great. And if Wes Anderson can't get nominated for the Royal Tenenbaums, what's even the point of making movies? You know what I mean? Um, I will go with the Royal Tenenbaums, though, for best original screenplay. No arguments here. I, I have no issue with any of... Memento, uh, Royal Tenements, or Monsters Ball. Uh, best screenplay adaptation went to A Beautiful Mind, Akiva Goldsman, based on the book by Sylvia Nasser. What else was nominated? Ghost World, In the Bedroom, The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, and Shrek. I know you're going to go with Shrek because your partial animated movies getting recognized in categories that are non-animation, but I loved Ghost World. Daniel Close and Terry Zweigoff, based on the comic book by Daniel Close, Really funny movie. I mean, this is like, you know, high schoolers that are on the margins always get pushed to the side. They get made fun of. But, I mean, it's a funny movie. And I love Zweigoff, of course, because he did Crumb, which is my favorite documentary of all time. I'd like to have seen him win an Academy Award for writing Ghost World. You're right. I am going to go with Shrek. I actually, I love that movie, and I actually watched Shrek 3 over the weekend. Um, don't ask me why or how. I just did. But I will go with Shrek. <laughs> 
As always, it's a judgment-free zone here on Cinephile. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs> Please do give us some love. Cinephile Pod or add in S. Burke. Go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks to my guest, John Pessa. You can pick up Yogi, A Life Behind the Mask, online right now, a great baseball book. Uh, next week, I'm going to talk about a couple of Peter Bogdanovich movies from the 1970s, What's Up, Doc, and also Paper Moon, and whatever else we can end up watching. Everybody stay safe, stay at home, and I'll see you at the movies. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.